Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy this morning as it extends to us and as you teach us through your word that we might learn as you teach us. We pray, O God, that you would aid us by the power of the Spirit that we might see Christ clearly, his teachings clearly, and what he would have us to understand clearly. We pray, O God, that the preaching of the word would be filled with the unction of the Spirit, that the hearing of it would also be filled with the power of the Spirit. We ask, O God, that you would illuminate us to the text and the information in which Jesus is speaking to us about. We pray, O God, that these propositions would dwell richly in our minds and hearts, that we might do exactly what Christ commands us this morning, which is to remember. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. We are turning from Genesis to Luke chapter 17. Not because Luke chapter 17 is just a sidestep of a sermon, or maybe we've been tired with Genesis, but rather because Christ in Luke 17 specifically commands us something that we have been studying. We've just finished last week in dealing with Lot's escape from Sodom and Gomorrah with his wife, and we'll find that the Lord Jesus specifically tells us to remember Lot's wife. Let's read together. Luke chapter 17, verses 20 to 33. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part of the heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot. They ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us as we study this passage. The text opens with the Pharisees and a question, and Jesus in these first couple of verses deals with the coming of the kingdom. The Pharisees has asked them a question about the coming of the kingdom, and this particular question surrounded the gospel. It surrounded the consummation of God's promises, when the kingdom of God would come. Verse 20. When Jesus answered them, there are two lines of thought that are related here and that he deals with. One, 
his coming at the destruction of Jerusalem as a foretaste, and two, his coming at the end of the world, two different lines of thought. It is a discussion of the basic theme, the kingdom of God. And in order to understand what follows, we should bear in mind that in the Greek original, the word basileia, or kingdom, sometimes means kingdom, sometimes kingship, rule, reign, sovereignty. And unless that particular fact is kept in mind, one will experience some difficulty in understanding verses 20 and 21. He's asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. Jesus replied by saying, the kingdom of God does not come with outward display. No will people say, look here, there it is, or there it is, for note well, the kingdom of God is within you. It is the rule, reign, and sovereignty. The Pharisees and their many followers were looking forward to the arrival of an outward, earthly, visible kingdom, one in which the Jews would occupy a very prominent place. They were hardly able to wait for its arrival under Roman oppression. But they were misinformed. Jesus declares that the kingdom, or here preferably kingship, the kingship of God, is basically spiritual in its essence. It is within, or if one prefers, inside a person. Wherever God is truly recognized and honored as king, there one finds his kingdom or his kingship. Verse 22 to 25, he turns from the Pharisees and begins speaking with his disciples. The Pharisees are now not the center of attention. The disciples are the center of attention. And these words are spoken to them and to Christ's followers, both then and down through the ages. Note the following. The phrase, the days of the sun, signifies the messianic era at the close of the world's history. Some think it's coming right now and have an air of excitement, believing that Jesus is doing things right now, and right now pertains to the end of the age, and they take their Bible and they take the newspaper and they read them hand in hand. However, Jesus says when it occurs, it will be worldwide, and there will be no mistaking it. But, he says, suffering must come first, the words, and must be rejected by this generation, shows that Jesus was pointing to the cross, having spoken about his second coming and about his suffering that is to occur much earlier, Jesus now pictures how people will be living during the days just before his return. So there and then, when Jesus was speaking this, he was speaking about the kingdom being fulfilled and completed through his work, and then ultimately he moves to the coming of the end of the ages, when he returns. And he makes two parallels, Noah and Lot. And just as it was in the days of Noah, the very suddenness of the coming points up the necessity to guard against being unprepared and being careless. They were unconcerned. They continued to live as always, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. The men of Noah's day failed to realize their perilous situation until it was too late. Suddenly, the cataclysm, the word used in the original, the cataclysm, came. For them, it was indeed a washing down, which is the basic meaning of the word. The flood basically destroyed them all, and they were unaware. They were not prepared. 
And then he says, so it was in the days of Lot. The people of Lot, they were also engaged in the ordinary affairs of life. Eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But they were utterly self-centered. Lot had lived among them as a righteous man who was distressed by their filthy lives, as Second Peter 2, 7 and 8 says. Sodom's inhabitants paid no attention to him. Even when at God's command, Lot left Sodom. The people in general were just going right ahead in their business as usual. That simple manner. And then suddenly, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Why did Christ select Noah and Lot as examples of men who took heed? Both were not as virtuous as one would like. Noah, when he got off the boat, became drunk. Lot lived in Sodom. But the point that Jesus is making is that both heeded God's warning. Noah built an ark, and Lot left Sodom. Water drowned the inhabitants in Noah's day, and fire destroyed the inhabitants in Lot's day. So Jesus says, it will also be the same on the day that the Son of Man comes and his glory is revealed. He says, on that day, in verse 31, Matthew 24, and it's parallel in Mark 13, gives this warning as it's applied to the days just previous to Jerusalem's fall in A.D. 70. The meaning of the passage and these other passages is that the man who is on the flat roof of his house from which by means of an outside ladder he can descend in order as quickly as possible to flee to the hills must not, after descending, enter his house in order to rescue any of his goods because the judgment is going to come that quickly. Similarly, the laborer who's dressed only in his tunic and working in the field, must not before his flight go back to his house to get his coat. Both of these men should flee at once without trying to rescue any possessions, whether a coat or anything else. And in connection with the present passage, any thought of fleeing is, of course, out of the question. Jesus, to this admonition, adds an illustration showing what is the tragic result of looking back with yearning to possessions that have been left behind. He says in verse 32, remember Lot's wife. It's not sad that she turned into a pillar of salt, but that in her scale of values, she placed earth above heaven, material things above spiritual things. And what Jesus holds before his followers then is that they should be so prepared for his return that in their thoughts and words and deeds they always assign the preeminence to him, doing everything out of love for him and thus out of a love to the triune God. And so he comments, whoever tries to keep his life shall lose it, but whoever loses his life shall preserve it. Luke, in chapter 9, verse 24, says a bit of the same phraseology, conveys the same meaning. In the present context, it's those who are represented as trying to hang on to their life. And losing it are the earthbound people of Noah's day and of Lot's day. 
including Lot's wife and all those who are similarly minded. Those are indeed losers that will become apparent, especially on the day of Christ's return. On that day, the preservation and victory of the people who have shown the opposite attitude, that of self-denial and self-sacrifice, out of love for the Savior, will also become publicly manifest. Wherever they are, those who are spiritually dead, there the final judgment will overtake them. So there is a contrast between those who lose their lives for Christ and those who try to preserve their lives for themselves. The doctrine that we pull out of this text is, remember, Lot's wife. Let's ask a couple of questions about this. First, who was she? Well, she was Lot's wife. She was the wife of a man with many faults, yet Lot was considered righteous. She was united to him by matrimony. She was his wife. She had lived among Abraham and the working of God in Abraham's life. She saw all of those things. She shared in all the privileges of the separated people, and yet she still perished. She was dear to the one who had been dear to the father of the faithful, Lot, and still she perished in her sin. Think about it. She followed her husband out of the city. She was actually out of Sodom. She was almost in Zoar, the refuge city, and yet she perished. Almost saved, but not quite. She also, as we know, fled Sodom. She went with her husband and her daughters. She seemed to be righteous and seemed to be of God's people. Some in Sodom may seem to carry a fair face and make a fair outward show. But if we could look into their hearts, they are altogether filthy and abominable. She lingered behind Lot. Moses tells us Lot's wife looked back from behind him. She was a slacker of sorts. She looked back to Sodom. She did not realize that there is nothing in Sodom that is not worth looking back upon. Not realizing this was a sign of her lost condition. All the enjoyments of Sodom would perish and they will all be burnt up. It's not worth looking back on the things that are perishing and consuming in the flames as it is with all the enjoyments of sin. They are all appointed to the fire. She remembered the joy in those things that she left in Sodom. Sodom was a place of great abundance for her. Remember why Lot chose that region. The soil about Sodom was exceedingly fruitful. It is said to be as the garden of God in Genesis 13.10. And fullness of bread was one of the sins of that place, as Ezekiel 16.49 tells us. It was an abundant, thriving place. She loved Sodom. Earthly things more than godly things. She was warned by angels, by messengers sent from God to make haste 
in her leaving Sodom and not to look behind. There's nothing wrong with the things of life so long as they're used for the glory of God and not for selfish reasons. But when the soul becomes entirely wrapped up in them so that matters such as these become ends in and of themselves and the spiritual things are neglected, they are no longer a blessing. They become a curse. And they've become evidence of gross materialism, false security, and often cold selfishness. Looking back might seem like a very small thing, but we are sure by the punishment of what happened to her that it was a very great sin, exceedingly sinful. She disobeyed an express command and sinned in the same manner as Adam's transgression, which ruined all of us. Unbelief was at its core. Maybe she questioned whether Sodom would be destroyed and thought she might still have been safe in it. She looked back upon her neighbors, who she left behind with more concern than she should have had now that their day of grace was over and justice was glorifying itself in their ruin. She loved her house. She loved her goods. She loved the place where she lived in Sodom. And she was loath to leave it. Christ says that this is her sin. She regarded these things too much. She regarded her stuff as important in the wrong way. Her looking back demonstrates that inclination that she had to go back. And therefore, Christ uses it as a warning against apostasy from our Christian profession. We've all renounced the world and the flesh and have set our faces up to heaven. We are in the plain. We're upon our probation. And it is at our peril if we return into the interests which, which we have abandoned. We've left our old life. Drawing back to our old life is to go back to perdition. And looking back is towards it. Let us therefore fear, as Hebrews 4 and verse 1 says. The city of Sodom, remember, was exceedingly wicked. Sodom is representative of a city full of filth and abomination. Jonathan Edwards described it this way. It is full of those impurities that ought to be had in the utmost abhorrence and detestation by all. The inhabitants of it are a polluted company. They are all under the power and dominion of hateful lusts. All their faculties and affections are polluted with those wild dispositions that are unworthy of the human nature, that greatly debase it, that are exceedingly hateful to God, and that are dreadfully incensed in making him angry. Every kind of spiritual abomination abounds in it. There is nothing so hateful and abominable, but that there is to be found, and there it abounds. It is a city full of devils, a city filled with unclean spirits. Who would be so foolish as to have their hearts trapped by such a city? Who would not flee from such a city 
with haste. Remember Lot's wife. Sodom and her inhabitants are appointed to destruction. God had heard the cry of the wickedness again, which was exceedingly great. He wouldn't allow the city to stand because he's holy. And his nature is infinitely opposed to everything that Lot's wife desired about the city. That they were appointed to destruction without pity. How could it be that Lot's wife wanted to go back? Literally, Sodom suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Jude verse 7 says, Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The destruction that Sodom and Gomorrah suffered was an eternal destruction. Those cities were destroyed and have never been built since. They are not capable of being rebuilt. For the land on which they stood at the time of their destruction sunk and has ever since been covered with the lake of Sodom or, as it is known, the Dead Sea, or as it is called in Scripture, the Sea of Salt. Jude says that they were set forth as an example, a type or representation of the eternal fire in which all the ungodly are to be consumed. Why would Lot's wife so desire to be included in the company of those who resemble the eternal damnation and swift destruction of God upon wickedness? Remember Lot's wife. We remember Lot's wife and her desires. Christ told his disciples to remember her. That includes us. She is remembered for her worldly lusts. She loved the world more than she loved God. The world of humanity is set apart into two classes, two groups. Those who live in the city of God and those who live in the city of man. As Augustine so eloquently put in the city of God. Being converted and in the company of Zion and the righteous, at no time will Christ allow us to look back to that which we fled from without any recourse. Never look back to the remembrance of the enjoyments which you had in Sodom and never cultivate any of the same enjoyments now that you had then in the same manner. That life is over. Remember Lot's wife. She looked back and she was sad that she was leaving a life of ease and a life of comfort, the carnal city. You must never be forever willing to leave all the ease and pleasure and profit of sin to forsake all for Christ. The only way that salvation works for the Christian's good is to press forward with all your might, and still to look and press forward, never to stand still or slow down in the pace. When Lot's wife stopped in her flight and stood still in order that she might look, her punishment was that there she was to stand forever. She never got another step further. She never got beyond that place. But there she stood as a pillar of salt, a durable pillar 
and a monument to God's wrath for her folly and wickedness. So it is with every backslider. Though they might live what looks to be the Christian walk for a very long time, that when they look back, after they've been taking pains for their salvation, they lose everything. What happens to backsliders who look back? They quench the spirit. They lose their convictions and become discouraged. They begin to harden their hearts towards the means of grace. They begin to strengthen and establish the interest of sin in their hearts. They give way to the devil. They provoke God willingly. Their souls harden like the pillar of salt that was once Lot's wife. When someone backslides like this, there's a great danger of sealing their fate in it. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Hebrews 10 is speaking about the backsliders. We would be smart and we would do well to remember Christ's words about Lot's wife. Backsliding usually comes on people that have for some time been under any considerable convictions and afterwards lose them. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Considering Lot's wife, her outcome should press us to great care and great diligence in our walk before God. Edward said, let it put you upon endeavors to strengthen your resolutions of guarding against everything that tends to the contrary, that you may indeed hold out to the end. For then shall you know if you follow on to know the Lord. Don't simply remember Lot's wife, but remember why Jesus Christ commanded us in respect to his final coming to live accordingly in light of what Lot's wife did. His warning to us with discrimination between us acting like Lot or his wife is the point. Lot's wife disobeyed God's command and failed to heed his warning. Escape for your life. Do not look behind you and do not stay anywhere in the valley. Escape to the mountains lest you be swept away. Genesis 19.17 Is God unjust to repay disobedience with a previously announced penalty? Not at all. Evidently, Jesus didn't think so. For he admonishes his hearers, that is us, to remember Lot's wife. And the account that Jesus gives teaches us to remain steadfast. For he who wants to be a Christian must not change his purpose. He must not look for another way or another gospel. There's only one way, one way of salvation. And if we enter upon another, or if we think that there's another way, an easier way, then we're much like Lot's wife. But so far as Lot's wife is concerned, the example is instruction for us rather than a condemnation of the woman. 
she was overcome by human weakness. And contrary to the angel's command, look back towards those awful events. The allurements of the world should never draw us aside from the meditation of the heavenly life. Salvation in Christ is not simply about how one starts the race, but how they end up. She was literally, literally, at the gate of the refuge city, and she didn't make it in. It really makes little difference then how we begin, necessarily, but how we end. And she perished in the very act of sin. Thomas Adams, Puritan preacher, said, Remember Lot's wife. Think on that pillar of salt that it might season thee. Let's pray. Mighty God, we ask that you would aid us in this brief admonition to remember Lot's wife, that we might be seasoned, ready, able, willing, filled with the Spirit, in the demonstration of the power of the Word, live a life before you that is prepared, that we would be wise and not as fools, that we would be like Noah and Lot, not like the people in the day of the flood, not like Lot's wife. We ask, O oh God, that you would aid us and help us and press us to remember Lot's wife. That we, O oh God, would not be like her, but that we would be reminded it is not how simply we begin, for the plain is very long. It is, however, how we end, entering into the city of refuge. We know, O oh God, this is done by your Spirit and by the power of your Spirit, and so we pray that you would increase the measure of the Spirit that has been given to us in power and efficacy of the Word, and that you would aid us in these next days, in these next weeks, months, and years, to be prepared always that we might look to you, the great God, who has given us salvation, that we might please you, looking to Christ, who is in heaven, not at the things of the world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, 
abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.